Before we begin, a disclaimer, this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for any investment decision. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security. The securities discussed on this podcast may be owned by persons being interviewed. Before making any investment decision, please consult an investment advisor. conversation just made me want to like bang my head in like are we really having this yeah what what are the things uh i think you see on fintwit sometimes is people tweet um like very conventional wisdom and consensus opinion as though it were a controversial insight you know yeah so like you'll, you'll say something innocuous like uh how charter did you know 15 billion of ebitda or whatever and someone will like sanctimoniously respond Oh, don't you know, like EBITDA is bullshit earnings. Yeah. I prefer to look at levered free cash flow. Yeah, you know? try, try, try paying your bill with EBITDA. It's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's like, how about in the spirit of charity? You assume that everyone on FitTwit has heard everything Buffett and Munger have to say. We've all read Mobis and stuff, and we're all very aware of the very rudimentary concept that EBITDA is not the same thing as after-tax cash flow to shareholders. Right. It's like, trust me, nobody thinks EBITDA is the same thing as owner yeah. earnings. Nobody's confused about this right, point. Right. You know? And like the reason why people talk about EBITDA is not because they're idiots and you're the only one who gets it. It's because like most experienced investors who know a business really well, they like to disaggregate and think separately about like the um, subtractive components that get you from EBITDA to free cash flow, you know, so that you can toggle growth capex or maintenance capex or working capital or whatever and see how things exactly. change. I mean- it's like investing, it, it, you can't just look at a single, you know, valuation metric and be like, okay, that's it. Because each one has its own benefits and drawbacks. You know, you can look at EPS or free cash flow, and then if the company is super levered, you know, that wouldn't take that into consideration. Um, and so EBITDA would. Yes. Um, and so like, and then also when you, if you're going to penalize for growth capex, you, you know, you have to make sure that you're giving them the credit for you know, the growth that that's going to generate going forward. And so, yeah, you just want to be able to think more clearly about the business's capital needs and capital allocation. And and just saying like, oh, you know, levered free cash flow is 500 million or whatever in a vacuum. Yeah. That doesn't tell exactly. you much, you know? I never, yeah. like, I just realized like Amazon and, and um, Costco, same multiple, you know, one's growing double digits, one's growing single digits. And, you know, long-term one should be, should be, much more capital light than the other, I would think. Yeah. But, you know, no uh, $1 hot dogs at Amazon. That's true. That's true. And I hear the pizza. I, I hear the pizza is really good. The yeah. pizza is amazing. So, <clears throat> you know, on a sum of the parts basis, when you value the, you know, the cafeteria section at Costco separately. And, and the franchising opportunity of the pizza. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, you, you got to take those moving parts. Dude, one thing um, I saw on Twitter, I don't know, it was like about, I think it was about like uh, some of the parts investing, just like how it never works. And um, and also just like like complexity. And just like the more I think about it, the more I think like when you have to get into a some of the parts thesis and or need like 10 minutes to go through how business works and why it's very undervalued. I just feel like those stocks don't make money. You know, if it's too complicated, you're like, 
it's complicated for a reason. And you're probably um, just kind of like skating over what could be some like very detrimental factors. Like the business has maybe some risks that you're not aware of and they're trying to, or like they're trying to explain away like the lack of earnings, whatever it is. I guess speaking of hard businesses to understand, I don't know if, I don't know if today's topic is, I guess it's not that hard, but I guess maybe like, just like the, the fundamentals are hard to understand. Sorry, just before diving into this thing, I just have a quick uh, scheduling announcement okay. for uh, Scuttleblurb subscribers. So um, yeah, so as you know, I'm working on this multi-part post on merchant acquirers and, and uh, payment processors. And um, it was supposed to be three parts. It's now looking like it's going to be four parts. So what I'll do is I'll post both parts on the same day. I'm thinking like December 17th or 18th. And then I'll have a scuttle blurb business update for you guys after uh, Christmas to finish off the year. So good stuff. Uh, that's it. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. So so um, and today's topic is is somewhat related. Um, and that we're going to talk about ADS and you, you did a blog on this, um, mm-hmm. earlier the year, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, do you want to, do you want me to go? Yeah. Do you want to kind of just give some of the background? Totally. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, I'll give a quick overview here. So they ADS Alliance data systems, they run, um, private label credit card programs. So, you know, when you like walk into a, uh, Banana Republic, and you're at the checkout, and the checkout person asks asks you if you want to sign up for uh, a Banana Republic card and get you know 30% off your purchase. That card is a private label credit card. So Synchrony is the um, other big player in the space. They're much bigger than ADS, and so uh, the way to think about this is <clears throat> the merchant benefits from a private label program in uh, in two main ways. First, the private label card issuers don't charge interchange fees to the merchants. Um, in fact, it goes the other way. So Synchrony has what's called um, retailer share agreements where they share the program's profits with the retailer. And uh, the second thing is because the transaction gets routed through proprietary rails rather than through Visa and MasterCard, um, ADS gets access to all this granular first-party data that most card issuers don't. So, you know, like a typical card issuer might see that, you know, you spent hundred bucks at Banana Republic on October 29th, but ADS can see that, you know, you bought a coat and a pair of gloves on that day. And then ADS can use that data to target those card holders with, uh, you know, tailored marketing ads. Um, and, uh, and yeah. And so the benefit for card holders, of course, is that, you know, they earn discounts and special offers by, by using the card. And t- Dave just jumped. So, and just to be clear, the benefit to the retailers is, is twofold. They get um, higher nets on, on their sales, and then they also potentially just drive the top line through enhanced marketing initiatives. Yeah, exactly. So they don't, they don't pay the interchange and they get data <clears throat> from routing yep. the transactions on their own rails. Um, and so, yeah, the way I described this business in my, in my uh, write-up earlier this year is that ADS, they... You know, they make money by charging interest on credit card loans, but they create value by using the fir- merchant's first-party data to encourage shoppers to spend more, uh, much like a marketer. And so Synchrony is somewhat different in that they function less as a marketer and more as kind of uh, more of a liquidity tool for, for shoppers. Yeah, that's a really good background. And so I guess what's going on with the business, um, you want to just talk about the uh, like more recently, kind of like how they sold off one of the divisions and kind of what we're left with today. 
Yeah, totally. So, um, so if you rewind the clock back like a year, ADS had three businesses. So they had like a marketing services company called Epsilon. They had the private label credit card business that I just talked about. And they had this, um, you know, coalition loyalty business called Loyalty One. So, you know, they run the Air Miles program in Canada um, and other like short-term loyalty programs for grocery stores. So they sold the uh, Epsilon, the marketing services business earlier this year for uh, $4 billion. And they used that money to retire a bunch of debt. And they brought their gross leverage ratio down to like, you know, 1.6 or something, 1.6 times. And, and they also um, repurchased a bunch of their shares through a uh, Dutch tender. Um, I won't get into the details of Loyalty One. You can read about that on, in, in the write-up if you want, but it's it's not a value it's not a value driver for ADS. Yeah, I think it's like less than ten percent of the earnings. Yeah, exactly. So ADS's fate at this point is really tied to the to the private label car business. That's what really matters here, and so that's what we'll kind of focus on. Yeah, and so um, so I know you and I have been looking at this recently and just talking about, I guess the strength of the company and then also valuation because just from a, from a quantitative perspective, valuation seems incredibly cheap. And also you have the company, you know, dedicated to buying back a ton of stock. As you said, they just did the, the Dutch tender and they also have a current authorization outstanding right now, which, you know, they've been fairly active on. Yeah. So I guess it kind of, I think a lot of our conversation so far has just come down to you know, is this business sustainable? And so what's happening to their loan portfolio? So that's kind of like one key question that I think we've been trying to dive into. And I know we've spent a lot of time digging into, you know, or just doing bridges from from period to period. And and the cash flow statement's confusing. And even when you, I think we've, we've gotten to a point where we got most of it right, it does seem to tie. It's just kind of interesting that, you know, they'll, they say that the portfolio should uh, grow over time. And- mm-hmm. I guess it's just really hard to actually see that in the numbers. And they yeah. talk about, you know, they talk about, I don't know if you wanted to make this point, I guess I'll just make it since I'm saying it, but you know, they divide mm-hmm. the, the portfolio into two different seg- um, buckets. They've got a growth segment, um, which is kind of like higher growth retailers, um, a lot of e-com stuff. And then they also have, you know, the legacy kind of runoff bucket, which is more mall-based um, secularly challenged retailers. And, they say that when you, you you when you net it all out, this should be a portfolio that that grows. I forget what the number is. Is it uh, mid single digits, Dave? They've been diversifying away from the specialty retailers for over the last like four years or so. Uh, so they've been signing up companies like like Alta Beauty and Viking Cruises, companies in like the hospitality and beauty space that are more immune to uh, online disintermediation. And so they're saying sixty percent of their receivables comes from those new verticals. And I think those that that newer stuff is growing, like high single digits, maybe or low double digits even. And uh, the other stuff, the other forty percent, the traditional portfolio, that's maybe that's flat, maybe that's growing low single digits. Uh, it's not really clear. But when you kind of blend it to, I mean, it seems like you should be seeing a portfolio that is growing organically, at least like mid single digits, right? I guess just um, on that point, so. If you have a portfolio that you're not writing any new business for, I mean, organically, it's going to decline just as um, people either pay off their balances or or you have loan losses, which should just like naturally shrink the portfolio. And so, you know, loan losses are around 6% a year. So 
maybe that kind of like buckets that. But at the end of the day, I think where we've kind of come up with is like, it's not really clear if this methodology of good versus bad has been consistent over time and how you decide what is good, what is bad. You know, are you just retrospectively saying, oh, okay, well, this account seems to be growing. So we're going to put this in the good bucket and this, this one's shrinking. So we're going to put it in the bad bucket. And then what do you do the following year? You know? And I kind of think because of that, you're just better off looking at just looking at the numbers and trusting the numbers instead of like what's going, what management tells you is going to happen. Yeah. So it sounds like, oh, I guess the other thing to keep in mind is that, um, uh, you know, 35% of ADS's receivables today were onboarded sometime in the last four years. And so because it takes like three to five years for these new programs to mature, there's kind of a natural growth tailwind to the receivables. And so I, I think like basically the idea is that if you look, so if you look at the receivables balance on face value, it's actually shrinking because um, because they've been selling off uh, some of the receivables, even if you believe that the receivables are growing uh, mid-single digits, that growth is being offset by um, receivable sales. Right. And so, so the idea is that, look, if you, if you can look out three to five years as these newer programs mature, as they sign up some of these, more of these, um, you know, faster growing merchants and the traditional book, um, you know, kind of shrinks, you'll get a receivables balance that should be growing like, you know, high single digits, maybe. And if that's the case, then, you know, today's five to six times earnings multiple looks really cheap. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's the thing. I mean, you have a, let's, even if you were to take a really conservative stance and just say, okay, let's say, assume they write no new business and this thing is in runoff and it's running off 5% a year, but you're getting, you know, a 20% cash on cash return. I mean, I feel like that I haven't done the IRR on that, but it's going to be above, or sorry, the IRR will be, you know, really attractive return. And so, so I guess it kind of comes down to then is like, what's the quality of these receivables and why are they selling off buckets of it? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think if you look over time, their their charge offs are pretty comparable to like general purpose card issuers, um, but their account balances are also a lot smaller. So uh, I don't know. I can tell you that if you go back to like 0809, their charge off rates were around um, like nine percent, which is actually slightly better than what the big banks were reporting for their card portfolios during that time. But like you know the 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 cyclicality of this business, I mean, you you can't really it's hard to get around this. I mean, I don't really mind investing in cyclical companies so long as like the company commands certain advantages so that it emerges from the cycle, from the downturn stronger and in better shape than their competitors. So that's why I bought like Ryanair a few months ago after it got beaten down on external challenges because, you know, they had unit costs that were, you know, one third of other airlines. Um, and so however bad they got hit, the incumbent competitors were going to get hit far worse. And I thought at the end of it all, Ryanair could emerge in a position of relative strength. And that's not really true of ADS, right? So like, <laughs> I mean, if a big recession hits, they're going to go along for that ride. And there's no reason to think that they'll be like a better company. So um, I guess being that, you know, I think you probably know this company a lot better than I do. Um, and being that you've had a chance to to talk with, uh, <laughs> to talk with, with investor relations. Yeah, yeah, maybe I'll just talk about that real quick. I mean... So I had a very, we, we spoke about it a little bit, but I had a very awkward and frustrating conversation with her IR. And I'll just get this out in the open. I mean, so and like at the start of the call, she seemed skeptical of me and, and asked me like what I what I was about. And I told her I managed a small fund and that I wrote a blog. I owned some of the stock at the time that I called her, by the way. 
So, you know, I was asking as like, a, I was asking her questions as a, as a shareholder, uh, you know, factual questions. And she kept responding with these very terse um, two or three word answers. And it felt like she was uh, stonewalling me. My questions were basically longer than her answers. So I was talking to myself in a way. And so finally, I just kind of stopped and they just said, you know, look, I know your stock hasn't done so great. And maybe you've gotten a lot of angry phone calls, but, you know, I, I assure you that, you know, I'm on your side, that this isn't a gotcha call. I'm just a recent shareholder trying to figure out how your business works. And so, you know, she responds that she's um, apprehensive because I write a blog and that if she knew I wrote a blog, she wouldn't have talked to me in the first place. And she uh, suggested that I talk to their media person. And by the way, she was very polite about all of this. So I don't, I don't mean to like cast her in a negative light in, in any way. Um, I'm just, it's just how it, how it went. And so, but basically I'm thinking like, you know, so what, like, why does it matter that I write a blog? I mean, she must talk to sell side analysts all the time. And those analysts distribute their opinions to buy side investors and have way more reach than my little blog has. And or people do write-ups on VIC or whatever it is. Exactly. People do write-ups on VIX. And, you know, it's, it's also become the norm for funds to publish their investor letters on their website. Yeah. So does that count as a blog? And do you just refuse to talk to any investor who posts their letters on the internet? And it shouldn't matter, it shouldn't matter whether you publicize your thoughts or not. I mean, you're asking legitimate questions as a shareholder, trying to understand the business better, like stonewalling. Your yeah. Time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, let's say I do talk to their media person instead. Why would I get different answers to the same factual fact-based questions? You know, I mean, that doesn't really make sense. And so my, my feeling on this is, you know, if someone like a blogger or investor or sell side analyst is intent on burning your company, they're going to do so whether you talk to them or not. And so being evasive doesn't really help your case. And that's especially true when your stock has lost nearly half its value over the last year and trades like a dying enterprise, because you know, in that context, people will just assume the worst. And I think that you'd want to set the record straight as much as possible and that you'd be, you know, transparent, more willing to talk to shareholders. But, um, but you know, just to take the other side for a second, she could have not taken the call, right? Like that happens to me all the time. And so, yeah, I was going to tell you, actually, like I've got a position in a company where I've literally called the CEO or the CFO maybe three or four times and left voice messages sent him another three or four emails. I called like the main office line, talked to the receptionist and asked her to leave a hand note, handwritten note for him, explaining <laughs> explaining that I own stock in the company and I'm just trying to understand some things a little bit better. And I've just got nothing, absolutely nothing. So- Yeah. Yeah, so to her credit, she took the call. And also, you know, look, given that she's under the impression that I may be trying to burn her company in a public forum, you know, she was under the wrong impression, but we can set that aside. Like her reaction in some ways was under totally understandable, you know, if that's kind of what she was thinking. Yeah. So, um, but it's also, I mean, if you were trying to burn the company, you'd, you'd want to like, at least I think by like being evasive, it kind of makes things people more skeptical than, than not. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, anyway, so, I mean, so I still think you, you understand kind of like some of the, the value proposition pretty well. And so do you think that, do you think that ADS lost some of the the value that they provide to them to the retailers upon spinning off epsilon was that you know is that something that you think might be like a concern to potential customers um i don't know they claim that they've most of the the value that they provided or the service that they provided was um used resources that they had built in-house in the card division and and they weren't 
that reliant on Epsilon. And, and I think that they're going to be like licensing some technology from, from Epsilon, like after, in any case. But I don't know, I, I think for me, because I was saying earlier that the, you know, the value of what they provide really has to do with marketing. And I don't know, like when you look at all the shit that's going on, when it comes to like payments and marketing and the fusion of those two, Google and Facebook, for instance, are now becoming like front ends for various financial services, or they're trying to. And like they have like deterministic matching by virtue of having so many users. And they also have like ad relationships with merchants. So you can sort of see them creating like a, a closed loop or something like that. Um, so yeah. I don't know. I just I just think that their moat, it just seems mediocre to me, right? So like one of the things that the bulls often say is that, well, the big banks, they don't want to get into this business because the average balances on these cards are too small. So the, the average balance is like 500 bucks on a $700 credit line. But I just think like, just because others don't want to get into your business, that doesn't mean that they can't, right? And so, like, I would rather hear that a competitor couldn't replicate a business, even if they tried, not just that, you know, they don't think it's worth it for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are really good points that you made as far as, like, the sustainability of the business. I guess I kind of take, like, a just a simpler perspective, um, which is just, like, saying, like, okay, forget, let's just say, assume that this is a, a dying business. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to underwrite you know, that, that competitive, like that moat, essentially, you know, this would still trade above its current price at, you know, five times yeah. you know, with only a, f- and so the question is, I guess like, what, like how do the economics work out? What's the value of this? What's the value of the existing portfolio that they, that they own today? And so if we just kind of run through some of the, you know, the, the economics of how this business works, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it will be helpful. So like, so basically on, on an outstanding balance, borrowers pay about 25% annually. Mm-hmm. And of that 25%, 10, or a little bit less than 10%, so like 9% goes to, to OPEX and servicing. And then 6% is just outright losses. And so um, they're left with like a 15, they're left with, sorry, a 10%, yeah, 25 minus 15. So they're left mm-hmm. with like a 10% margin um, on, on, or a 10% annual return on, on that loan. And then if you look at the financing side, like how do they actually fund this? They're about, uh, let's see here, 40% of it is through securitization, which, yeah. which I think costs around like two or 3%. And then, and then the remaining 60% is funded through, they have an in-house bank that takes deposits. And so the rate on that is even lower anyway. So, yeah. oh, here it is. Yeah. So securitizations, they cost them about 3%. Deposits cost them about one, one and a half percent. So Basically, it's just a spread business where they're making ten percent net on on their on their loans, and they're funding it with two percent cost of capital. And so, all else being equal, you'd say like, okay, this is great. Um, you know, you should be able to make money off of this. But then, if you go back over the last couple of years and look at the receivables that they've sold off, they've only sold it at at like uh, basically on average like three percent premium to par which is kind of crazy. I mean, you have a book that should be yielding you 10% after all your fees and expenses and you're only getting like 3% premium to that. Yeah. Maybe they're selling, maybe they're selling the garbage. The crappiest stuff yeah. Maybe they're selling the garbage, the garbage or... but you just, you don't know. Maybe they're selling good stuff and, and yeah. you're going to be left with garbage. <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, look, I think let's say the stuff that they are selling is like the really crappy declining stuff. Um, and maybe the charge offs on that are, are a lot higher. Maybe it's like 
10%. And then you've got to like service that book, right? So you need to like have a call center to call people who aren't paying their paying their statements. And so, I don't know, I guess when you kind of encumber those receivables with the cost needed to uh, service them, could you argue that, you know, that maybe they should, maybe that's like a, a fair price, you know, selling at 103? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess to your point, it, it just, it, it comes down to what's the quality of the, of the books that they're selling off. Are those, are those higher loss books or not? And I mean, presumably anyone buying it should have some sort of infrastructure in place. Maybe they won't be the same size as ADS, but um, hopefully there's not too many like additional costs that they'd have to bear. Well, let me ask you this. What do you think about, um, because like we were talking earlier about how there's there's kind of like a, a good bank, bad bank situation going on here. Maybe not like, you know, that extreme, but like if you were to just assume the like the 40% of, the receivables that's classified as traditional, like the lower growth, uh, perhaps crappier stuff, just gets sold off for whatever reason because it's not a good fit for ADS. Let's just let's just zero that out completely, you know, yeah. and say that the only earnings they get are from the other sixty percent. Like, could you justify? Like, would, would this thing still look cheap? Have you done the work on that? I have not, but I'm just I'm just thinking through this. I'm just thinking like, I don't know. Like, let's say you zero out that forty percent of the loan portfolio, and that brings ADS's per share earnings. Maybe that cuts their earnings in half. Maybe they go from like, you know, 20 bucks a share to like 10 bucks or something. But even then it's like, okay, well now you've got, you know, presumably like a clean portfolio that's growing low, high single digits, low double digits, and maybe earnings grows a little bit faster than that. And with those earnings growing by like, let's say 10% a year, that still seems like pretty damn cheap, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, there's, yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can kind of slice this. How you want to how you want to look at it. Whether you want to look at only the only the good book of business and just assume that that grows. For me, I mean, I'm just kind of saying, okay, let's assume everything falls. And oh, I mean, I guess just looking at this, it's another um, another interesting way to look at it is. So I did like a DCF of just the current balance, um, the current cost structure, and assume that that just runs off and you get some sort of um, like negative leverage as the book, as the book gets smaller, um, presumably your margin shrinks. Um, but anyway, so if you just run it off and, mm-hmm. you know, I basically get to the, where the share price is trading today, like based on, on the current book only. And so mm, if yeah. you look at the value of that as a percent, instead of looking at on a, if you take like the, the enterprise value of that business and divide that by their their receivables balance, you're valuing the receivables at like call it 25% of the value. So they've got a, mm-hmm. you know, they've got a receivables balance of like 19 billion and it's valuing and valuing the company at like $5 billion. Again, I get, I tie back to, okay, well, when they've actually sold this off today, you know, they're selling it at three, mm-hmm. at, you know, at 3% premium essentially. And so why, how can I assume a, um, how can I assume like a 25% premium to book when it's only like a 3% premium? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's an interesting point. So is that 3% premium? Is that based on like the 2 billion of receivables that they've sold this it's, year? Uh, I went through back, I went back um, since the beginning of 06, sorry, uh, 2016. And so that covers two and a half billion. Some of it was done at face value. Some of it was done at 2%. And then the other, the, the most of it was done at three. And the other thing I'm, I'm wondering is like, you know, if you look at, 
if you think about this as just being a financial institution instead of a marketing engine, I don't have it in front of me, mm-hmm. but I think like synchrony trades around like two or three times book value. And these guys are at 12. So yeah. w- like a much higher multiple there. And then also synchrony is just le- more, more conservatively funded. So, you know, their, their deposits and securitized debt only account for 90% of their receivables. Whereas, you know, it's like over a hundred or like about a hundred for, um, for these guys. And like one question, one question I have is like, is this, are there capital requirements for this type of business? Um, like you do have a, you have, you are, yeah, you are a bank. So what are the capital requirements? Um, yeah. So I guess the, the question here is if you look at their tangible equity, it's, it's very small. It's like 500 million or something like that. But then when you look at their, the cap ratios that they report for regulatory purposes, um, it's like 15%. It, it, and it's just how do you square these two? How do you kind of reconcile the fact that uh, their tangible equity is so low yeah. with the fact that their capital ratios are so robust? Well, I guess so. The cap ratios we're talking about are at the bank level, right? Because like they're offloading a bunch of – you have this bank and it's like securitizing a bunch right. of these receivables. No, that's a great point. You could have You could have positive – you could even have like negative – equity maybe at the holding company, you know? Yeah. So it's a combination of a well-capitalized bank and then, um, you know, everything outside the bank having negative tangible equity. Right. Right. I mean, I I think that's important though. I mean, it it gives a little comfort that the bank is is funded properly, like they're doing things properly. Mm -hmm. And then like if the bank is well-funded, future earnings should be distributable from like the holding company, you know, that actually makes me feel a little bit better about the business. Okay. So we, are we buying again? <laughs> I have to cover my short first. Hold on. <laughs> it just seems like it's a very opaque, like everything's very opaque, you know, it's kind of like why this is a pass for me is like, but you'd have to assume that, you know, that defaults are going to go from, go back up to high single digits, at least, um, well, probably high, yeah, high single digits in, in a recession. And so, um, you couple that with the fact that this is going to be, that's like a very volatile cost or volatile lenders or sorry, borrowers. Yeah. So I think that would be one, one of my worries with this is that because, um, you know, 40% of their receivables are funded with securitizations. Um, yeah. it's possible that that sort of dries up on them that funding source dries up on them. So um, yeah, that, that's a risk. But yeah, ultimately I just like, I still, cause I just couldn't get comfortable with like the durability of its of its business, of its moat. Like, I don't really know what this company looks like uh, in five or six years, you know? I also, yeah, I mean, for me, I guess I'm just having a hard time understanding, um, not, to, not, not necessarily durability, but like, yeah, like what's, or maybe it is, I guess, maybe, but just like, what's the value add that they provide with Epsilon gone? And if there's no value add, if they're just a, a financing engine, like. Yeah, that's the thing. Because if it is just about marketing, it seems like a lot of that can be stitched together with a lot of these, um, you know, different ad tech tools. Um, I don't know that you need to have like ADS on board for that. And so, and that's, and maybe, but retailers will onboard ADS because, um, because like, what do they have to lose? I guess is sort of the um, mentality here because they're not paying ADS to, to run these programs for them. 
ADS is getting paid by the cardholder, you know? Um, I guess, I, I don't know, maybe I'll just pose this as a question. Like, do you often see these lending companies um, sell off books of businesses? Like for like, like, obviously like you would want to get rid of maybe like crappy stuff that you own, but if you're, if I were, if you, if I were a company and you had a 3% cost of capital and you had the, a way to generate 25% um, or sorry, 10% net returns on, on that capital, you know, that that's a, that's a phenomenal spread and you should put on as much um, kind of leverage onto that as possible. And yet you see them selling off their book and shrinking, you know, do you think that given their scale, they should have a lower cost than most people and, Right. Like you, you just want to see like, what, what is the stream of profits on a runoff basis on the stuff that they're selling off? Right. Yeah. Like, well, what is the present value of those cash flows? Yeah. And is it greater than what you're realizing in a, in a sale today? You know, so neither of us own this. Is that, <laughs> you know, you want to know it, Dave, I think we're calling the bottom in the stock though. I know. I know. No kidding. No kidding. Like watch this thing like double yeah. now. What a bunch of idiots, you know, passing on $20 of free cash flow a share. Exactly. Yes. Um, well, I don't know. I feel it's definitely just like too hard in the too hard bucket for me. Too hard bucket. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Cool. Should I turn this shit off or should I stop recording? Yeah, yeah. Or... go ahead. Okay.